0: Just by way of confession this morning, um, I feel today a little bit uh, out of my comfort zone. Um, the, preaching this way uh, is not my normal uh, bread and butter, if you will. Uh, you, you, if you've been here for any uh, period of time, you know that Pastor Adam and I are both committed to systematic exposition of God's Word. That is, moving through God's, work, uh, God's Word a book at a time, you know, verse by verse, section by section. As we explain what God's word says, because we always need God's word and and we have it. So we ought to uh, study it and hear from it the way that God has given it to us. But last week and this week we've we changed things up and, and and our sermons have been more doctrinal and less uh, less expositional and so this is um, th- this is a little bit out of out of my wheelhouse a little bit and so I hope that you 'll be praying for me this morning, um, not that i 'll get through it, um, but but that I will do god 's word uh, justice today and, and that Uh, Certainly I won't take anything uh, and use it out of context or out of the way that God intends it. Um, And and so I, I hope that you'll be praying for me this morning. As we go through that, and and uh, I'll invite you to open your copy of God's Word this morning to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter sixteen, in verse thirteen. We'll begin there, and and then we're going to have like a good old fashioned Bible drill, and we're just going we're going to look at a lot of different verses today. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be a Bible under the seat just in front of you, and uh, if you don't have one at home, take that with you. That's our, our gift to you today. And join me in Matthew chapter. Uh, 16 is where we'll begin in just a moment. I have a, um, a, a, a sort of a dirty little secret, a thing that, that maybe not many people uh, know about me, and that's not a good way to start a sermon. I'm realizing that. Um, don't worry, honey. This is, There's this is no surprise to you. Uh, anytime... Anytime that, that I have to go shopping for like uh uh to, to do any sort of repair around the house or anything like that, I always, whether I'm at Ace or Sears or Home Depot or what I always, whether I need to or not, walk through the tool section. Right, yeah, so there's some yeah, mm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, right, or if there's a garage sale on a Saturday, you know as we 're driving to wherever we're going, and on the set, the sign for the garage sale says hand tools i 'm always like let's go to that one right let 's drive by let 's see what's there, why, Because I like tools and I like having tools. I thought about bringing my toolbox with me this morning, but there are real men in the church who would scoff at uh, my 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 <laughs> toolbox, and so for the sake of my my manhood and reputation, I left that at home, but in my toolbox, I have a growing collection. Stop laughing at me. It's not funny anymore. In my, in my toolbox, I have a growing collection of, of tools, of, of things that I've acquired um, over time for different projects that required maybe a specific tool at the time. Or I had a tool that was not quite the right size or whatever and, and needed a similar tool to get a job done. Or, or maybe I was just at ACE and I was there I was supposed to pick up fertilizer for the grass, but I needed a new socket set or something like that. Um, and my guess is that many of you have collections of tools in your home as well. Uh, the reason we have to have a collection of, of tools in a toolbox or, or wherever it is that you happen to keep those is because one there's no one tool that can do every job that you need done, right? There, there, there are pliers which are good for grabbing things tightly or maybe pinching things if they need to be done. Um, vice grips for the same thing, but, but, but they'll pinch and hold and you can let them go and they'll stay on there. I love vice grips by the way. Um, like they're like pliers on steroids, um, (laughs) hammers, drills, uh, all sorts of other accessories to go along with those things. But maybe one of my favorite tools, and it's really simple and, and you probably enjoy it too, because of its versatility is, is a plain old flathead screwdriver, right? So, so a flathead screwdriver can do a whole lot more than just drive screws. Right, it, it can be used to pry open paint cans. Uh, you can use it to, uh, um, I don't know, pry other things open. You get uh, get stuff out of tight spaces if it's long enough. Uh, lots of things you can do with a flathead screwdriver, and I'm sure you've used them for lots of things that that the inventor of the flathead screwdriver had never intended them to be used for. But but we do that because it's just such a such a versatile tool. But there's some things that even a flathead screwdriver can't do, right? You get up on your roof and you try to put shingles on your roof with a flathead screwdriver and you're going to be there all day. And at the end of the day, all the screws in your house are going to be loose and your roof is going to leak, right? There are some things that even a a flathead screwdriver cannot do. There are some tools that have very specific purposes, very specific uses, and there are some tools that have a variety of uses. They're very versatile, very, um, they're able to be used in a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, no one tool can do any one thing. And if you try to use a tool for something it wasn't designed to do, at the end of the day, you're just frustrated and the job's not done. Last week, Pastor Adam began walking us through many passages of the New Testament to demonstrate to us in a biblical way that local church membership is is a thoroughly biblical concept, right? Church membership is a thing that we see in Scripture, and it's a thing that we ought to practice. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to the tool thing in a minute. And it's something that all followers of of Christ should submit themselves to. We should submit ourselves to being members of a local church. It is good and right for the person who has trusted in Jesus as Lord to commit their life to a local body of likewise gospel transformed people. What happens after you join a church? Or what do you do then? Maybe you're here this morning, you're visiting, you've, you've, uh, you're not a member of our church, but you're visiting and you're seeing what we're all about, and, and uh, maybe you're wondering what things you ought to be looking for in a church before you join. We've had several people even join our church in the last weeks and, and months, and, and for those, maybe you're wondering, now that I've joined, what, I, what ought I to be doing? Or perhaps you've been a member of this church for 20 or 25 years. Um, you've been a member of, uh, of various churches throughout your life and the places that you've lived and moved and that sort of thing. Uh, but maybe you're still uncertain as to what the church ought to be doing. Or maybe you just need a refresher and a reminder of what God's word says the church ought to be. We might be asking ourselves this question this morning. I joined a church. Now what? Just as the tools in a toolbox are designed to perform specific functions, so also God has designed, created, and enabled the church to fulfill some very specific responsibilities. Yet, if we misunderstand those responsibilities, if we try to define those responsibilities of the church, if we try to define them ourselves apart from God and how God defines those things in His Word, then we very quickly find ourselves trying to shingle the roof with a screwdriver. Right, and In order then to be a member of the local church in the most biblical way, in the way that God has designed, the way that God has intended, and in a manner which helps the church to be continually growing in its faithfulness to the Bible, we must understand the things that God has designed and created the church to do and to be, and then we need to do and to be those things. This morning's sermon will continue from where Pastor Adam left off last week and and we are continuing to assume several things to be true of the church. Okay, I, just, I want to review that from from last week to to kind of help us segue into these are the things that we are assuming that are true about the church even before we look at the the different responsibilities of Church membership here in a moment. And Pastor Adam showed these to us last week. We are assuming, first of all, that the church is made up of only regenerate, that is, saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and baptized believers. The church is made up of only regenerate and baptized believers. It is gathered and it is local. That is, it is a physical assembly of those who are redeemed in Christ. Third, it is exclusive in that the church is made up of sinners, but only of a certain kind, that is, repenting sinners. The church is submitted and committed first and foremost to God's word and second to the godly pastors that are called by God and the church to lead it. And fifth and finally, we are assuming uh, to be true that the church is created by and is inextricably linked and united to Christ. Christ is its foundation. We as believers in Christ are united to him and everything we do as the church, as the body of Christ, is linked to Christ, is in reference to Christ. Christ. So that said, as the body of Christ, the local church has at least, I've found, and we'll talk about this morning, seven biblical responsibilities to carry out as a community of believers who have joined themselves together in the gospel, each with corresponding benefits for individual believers in the church as well as the whole body. So We're going to cover seven biblical responsibilities that God has given to the church, and we'll talk briefly about the benefits that that are gained by executing these responsibilities regularly as a church. So first, and and we'll get right into it. First of all, the first responsibility of the church is to glorify God as a gospel community. To glorify God as a gospel community. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, uh, says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so he said to them, but who do you say that I am? here in the middle of his ministry, Jesus asked the disciples what sort of reputation he had begun to develop. What were people saying about him? Who were people uh, beginning to believe that he was? Who were people saying that he was? And the answers are various, but there's one that sticks out. And the one that sticks out is Peter's, right? His answer to the question, who do you say that I am, is that uh, Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms Peter's confession as one that is not, not logically deduced by human mind, but one that has been revealed to him by God. That is, to know Jesus as Christ is to know God's truth as God has revealed it. And it is this confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah and Savior, that Jesus says he will build his church. He says, I I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the, the rock of your confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church on that rock, on that confession of faith. In this way, the the universal church, the the universal church which is made up of all people throughout all time in in all of the globe who trust in Christ alone for salvation, the universal church is built upon this foundational confession that Jesus is Lord and Christ. There is no way to be a part of the universal church. There is no way to be part of the family of the the redeemed, of the children of God, apart from confession uh, confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ. And in keeping with that, The local church, which is a local and and physical expression of the universal church, is built upon that very same confession. None of us is, is redeemed or brought into a right relationship with God apart from the confession that Jesus is the Christ. And as such, and as a local physical assembly of the redeemed, we are all gathering together on the foundation of that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So then, the local church rests upon the sure foundation of the confession of Jesus as Lord and Christ, and it's built by Christ upon that foundation as God calls people to Himself to be saved. The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ, as the household of God, as the bride of Christ. And so, as the church is built, ...by Christ upon an individual person's profession of faith in Jesus... ...the church is simultaneously united to Christ... ...joined to Christ and becomes his body and his bride. There's literally nothing that the church can do or, or, be, apart, or be apart from Christ. Our existence is rooted in Christ. Our existence as believers and as a church is, is founded upon and built upon Christ... He's our Savior, He's our Lord. He is our head and chief shepherd. He is the one to whom we will be eternally united. And all that we are as the church is because of Christ, is through Christ, is in Christ, and is for Christ. And yet we also find that Christ, even in his own life, did not live for himself. Right? Christ, even in his own life, deferred his will to one that was greater than him. The Father, right? God the Father. uh, Quickly, if you can, turn to John chapter 17. As Jesus is praying the night before He'll be betrayed and arrested and, 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 uh, and, and the day before He'll be crucified, he, he prays this in John chapter 17, verses 1-10. through 10. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may what? Glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." Here is Jesus is praying that the night before he would be betrayed, arrested, crucified, he's praying that he would be glorified so that what? So that the Father would be glorified. Christ's work on earth was to glorify the Father. And in doing so, many men and women were able to know the Father in truth for the first time as they saw Jesus, interacted with Jesus. Christ's work was not to make himself great, but to be a physical display, a manifestation of God's glory, and to give God glory so that mankind would see their need for a perfect and holy God to save them from their sin. And this Jesus does perfectly. He's our perfect Savior, but he also glorifies God perfectly. If anything that we do as a church is founded upon Christ and, and, and in Christ and through Christ and for Christ, it ought to also be in relation to that which Christ lived, right? Christ lived in relation to God in, in deference to the Father's will and in, in order to give God glory. And so if we are in Christ, we ought to also have our will be conformed to His. And we ought to desire to glorify God as well because that was Christ's desire. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, many of you probably know these verses by heart. The Apostle Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul gives us here this beautiful and theologically rich description of Christ's saving work and and even of his mindset through it all. Christ, who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father, gave up his place of glory with the Father to take on a human body, to live in obscurity and servitude, displaying perfect, sinless obedience to God the Father, even to the point of death on a cross for your sins and for my sins. All of this, Christ's work, His his humbling of Himself, right? God ordained to take place so that by Christ's death we would have salvation. Salvation from sin. And and through Christ's resurrection we would gain eternal life with God. And because of Christ's perfect sacrifice for sin, God has highly exalted Him and given Him authority over all things. So that all creatures would confess that Jesus is Lord, not for Jesus' glory, but to the glory of God the Father. It is God the Father whom we have all infinitely offended with our sin. It is God the Father whose pleasure it was to crush His Son so that all who have faith in Jesus might be made right with the Father." Christ glorifies God by being obedient to God's goodwill and to be crucified for our sin and raised again. And we, in turn, join Christ in God's glorification when we join our lives to Jesus through faith, uh, affirming and accepting the eternal and infinite goodness and graciousness of God's gift of salvation. So then Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever it is that we do as the church, the church built on the foundation of faith in Christ as Lord, must be to the glory of God through following His Son, Jesus. Christ lived and died and was raised again to glorify God by making a way for the salvation of us sinful men and women. And we have not been saved unto ourselves, we've not been saved for ourselves, but we've been saved by God and for God. Christian scholar Charles Bridges says this, The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. It is the grand scene in which the perfections of Jehovah are displayed to the universe. In the way that Christ manifested the glory of God among men, we now the church with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, we are now that which manifests the character of Christ in the world and the gospel to the world so that people might see Christ in us, and by seeing Christ in us and responding to Christ, they might be made right with the Father. All that Christ did was for God's glory. All that we must do and be about as the church must be for God's glory. The natural benefit of being the church in every way to the glory of God is very simply that we do and become the very things God created mankind to do and to be. We we are a thing being most properly used. We are a thing that is practicing that which it is most properly inclined to practice. Our daughter Abigail is five years old. She's trying to learn how to ride a bike. She's got training wheels right now, and um, but she enjoys riding her bike. She enjoys riding her bike because she rides the bike on the sidewalk and in the street where bikes are supposed to go. She's not trying to plow a field with a bike. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to plow a field with a bike. Um, if you have, I would love to hear that story and how it went. But my guess is that if you try to plow a field with a bike, you're not going to get very far. In the end of the day, the, the field's probably going to be a mess and your bike's going to be ruined, right? Because that's not what bikes are made for. Bikes are made to be ridden with joy and exuberance in the street and in the sidewalk, watching for cars, of course, and, and just enjoying riding a bike. A bike is most properly a bike when it's not plowing a field, but when it's being ridden down the road. Right? The church is most properly being the church, not when we are exalting ourselves, but when we are seeking to glorify God in all that we do. Second, second responsibility of, of the church, and hopefully we'll move a little bit quicker after this, no promises. The second responsibility of the church is to regularly gather for gospel assembly. To regularly gather for gospel assembly. You can write next to that congregational worship if you like. Last week, Pastor Adam introduced us to this Greek word, ekklesia, which is the word throughout the New Testament that is most commonly translated as church. And he demonstrated to us that in its proper societal context, in the the way in which it was used 2,000 years ago, that the word ekklesia means uh, assembly, right? A a local gathering, a public gathering of people. It's a word that was redeemed by Paul and the other New Testament writers and, and applied to the church to speak of the church as an assembly of the redeemed. And as the assembly of the redeemed in Christ, we must, by our very nature and as a matter of our existence, assemble together. Put another way, we can't be the assembly unless we are assembling. Every place of Scripture that refers to the gathering or the assembling of the church in this way has the whole of the local body in mind. I can't think of one place, haven't been able to find one place that refers to the church in the New Testament being gathered when it's only the senior adults together. Or when it's only the youth who are gathered on Thursday night, right? Rather, every indication is that the gathering of the body, as the assembly of the redeemed in Christ, is a holistic, a, a cross generational, pan generational corporate gathering of the whole body for worship. So, what that what should that worship look? Why is it important to to uh, to gather that way? Well, because. God's Word commands us to do that very thing. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we looked at this briefly last week, says this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Pastor Adam said last week, the church exists in in an abstract sense in the universal church. Right, But the church cannot exist concretely apart from the local assembly of believers. Right? We can't gather as the universal church because there are people in the universal church who have died and are gone and they can't gather with us. There are people in the universal church who live a continent away and right? we can't gather with them. But we can gather with those who have committed to gather like we have this way. The author of Hebrews then exhorts the church, he encourages the church to gather as the church for the purpose of spiritual and moral encouragement. More than just exhortation to gather for, or more than just a command or a reminder to gather for encouragement, the author of Hebrews is commanding them to not neglect this gathering. Don't just do it, but, but don't neglect to do it. Don't let it fall by the wayside. Make it a priority. Gathering as the body for corporate worship is not, not just a, a perk or a, or a thing that the church does or a perk of being a member of a church. It's our responsibility, To do this each and every week with regularity is a responsibility of the church. We're responsible to be the church by gathering regularly as the whole body for worship. It's why we encourage families to bring their children in with them to to worship because we see value in the whole family worshiping together. Don't worry if your kids are loud or make noises. Those are holy distractions, right? It is good for children to, to be here with their parents, seeing their parents worship and seeing their parents give priority to the gathered body altogether. This is why for the last two millennia, churches have gathered on Sundays as the whole church for the express purpose of corporate worship. may lead to the question or beg the question, so then what ought that worship to look like? How should it go? What's the order of service? Well, unfortunately, I think fortunately, there is no stated order of worship or order of service in the New Testament right? It's not like you do three songs, and then you have a greeting, and then you do one song during the offering, and then uh, one pastor prays for the other, and then he preaches the word, and then there's an invitation, and after that we have one more song, and then we all go meet at Applebee's for lunch, right? The, the, we don't have an explicitly stated order of service that way in the New Testament, but what we do have are some places that tell us not necessarily the order of worship, but, but certainly what ought to be part of its content, right? Not necessarily do these things in this order, but at least do these things, And one of the places that comes most readily to mind is Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. This is Paul's letter to the local church in Colossae. He says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here in Colossians, Paul doesn't give a specific order to the kind of things that should happen when the church gathers and when they worship. But he does mention what should be important, what should be most important. First and foremost, the indwelling of the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, right? The whole of Scripture and the gospel, including the commands and instructions of Christ, must be the heart and soul, the very foundation of all that the church does when it gathers. If the gospel, if God's word is not clearly observable as the foundation of our meetings, of our gatherings on Sundays when we get together, we should be concerned not only for our church, but also for our own souls. This is is what has brought us to Christ. This is what has showed us what it is to be saved. And this is what is showing us how to walk in salvation. And so if this is not the foundation of everything that we do as a church, let's close the doors and shut off the lights and never come back, okay? The indwelling of the word of Christ happens in a couple of different ways. First, through wise teaching and admonishment. Paul says through teaching and admonishing. One another in all wisdom. Paul mentions that the teaching of God's word is to be present and and central to their gathering. We, We know from places like 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Peter 5. We won't read all those for the sake of time. But we know from those places that God has explicit qualifications for the men who are to lead the corporately gathered church through the teaching and preaching of his word. And we do well to submit to God's word and we do well to submit to God's design in these ways and in his instruction. And and we do well to even submit to those whom God has called and we have called to be over us as pastors. We also let the word of Christ dwell richly among us through grateful singing. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It is good to sing as the body of Christ together. Isn't it? It's, it's moreover, it's, it's good to sing a variety of songs that musically proclaim the gospel and the glory of God. Paul even says to sing a variety of songs. Right? He says to sing uh, psalms and hymns and, and even spiritual songs, all with thankfulness in heart. What are the psalms that he's talking about? Well, these are most certainly the Old Testament collection of Hebrew songs that we know as the Book of Psalms. Right? Songs that were inspired that God inspired human uh, Jewish Israelite authors to write as part of the corporate worship for the people of Israel. And there are songs that have uh, been fit, psalms that have been fit to music for the church to sing corporately even today. Paul also mentions hymns. These hymns are not specified in the New Testament. Paul doesn't give us a description of exactly what they are. But I think that these are certainly gospel-oriented in nature. These would likely be these theologically-oriented songs, kind of cerebral songs that are proclaiming theology even set to music not unlike the classic hymns that we know and love and, and even newer hymns that are being produced uh, even today. We sing an old hymn and a newer hymn this morning. We sing the, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's an old hymn that's been set to new music and a new arrangement, but it's an old hymn that we've sung together. We sing other more contemporary hymns on a regular basis. Uh, one, in, uh, for instance, that I, that Danny has led us in that I love is, uh, is the song Cornerstone, Christ Alone, Cornerstone, um, I forget the rest of the words. Weak made strong in the Savior's love, right? Great hymn to, to, of the gospel uh, uh, proclaiming to us, and, and as we can proclaim to one another and even back in praise to God, the things that He has done for us in Christ. But then Paul also mentioned spiritual songs. These are other congregational songs that are also in the New Testament unspecified in their exact content, but certainly they're spiritual or, or gospel-centric. They have the Lord in mind. They have the gospel as their theme. They have Christ as, as their, the, the one that they are seeking to exalt and, and sing praises to. And we sing lots of songs today that are neither hymns nor psalms, but are somewhere uh, in the middle out there, right, that are pointing us to the gospel, songs of the gospel. And, and Danny and the praise team lead us faithfully in those each and every week. As a local church, it's our responsibility to gather as the whole body of Christ consistently and regularly to worship together as we do two things. As we sit under the teaching and application of God's word and through raising our voices to sing all kinds of songs that faithfully glorify God and remind us of the gospel. And when we do this, we give ourselves a a taste of of what is in store for us in eternity. Right When we gather as the church and we sit under the authority of God's word, and we raise our voices in song, we, we begin to, to, to give ourselves a preview of what we see will be the case in, in eternity. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 12, says this: "After I looked. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, if you don't enjoy worshiping with this local body on a regular basis, you're not going to enjoy heaven very much. Or the picture of heaven is, is certainly one of, of rejoicing in our Savior, of glorifying God, of singing praises to His name for all eternity. Right? And, and part of one of our responsibilities as a church even now is to do that in the here and now in preparation for the there and then. And so when we do that now, we're giving ourselves a foretaste, a blessed preview of eternity. Third among our responsibilities is to especially gather for gospel declaration. And by this, I mean the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. The Apostle Paul gives instruction to the church in Corinth. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, when you gather, when you assemble, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They're calling it the Lord's Supper, right? But Paul's saying it's not actually what you're doing. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The taking of the Lord's Supper as a church is a responsibility closely related to corporate worship. Paul mentions it as a, a matter of the church's regular gathering. When you come together, he says. But it's also a distinct part of worship that deserves closer attention. Okay? I've said that taking the Lord's Supper together is a responsibility. How is it a responsibility? Well, at least in this way. First and foremost, that it's a command of Christ and a regular practice of the church. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give, give more explicit description of, of Christ giving it to the disciples. John, a more summary statement. Uh, but it's present in all of the Gospels. And we know from places like Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that it was a regular practice of the early church as they gathered together to break bread and shared in these love feasts and other things. Paul it, references it here in 1 Corinthians 11 as an ongoing practice of the gathered church on the grounds of Christ's command. So Christ gave it to the disciples. Paul understands that, that that command to the disciples extends to all of the church for all time. And, and we see that, that Paul is addressing the way in which the, first Corinthian, the, the Corinthian church has not been taking the Lord's Supper correctly in their regular gatherings. So Paul assumes that it's happening regularly, and he gives them instruction on how to do it based on Christ's commands. That's why it's a responsibility, because Christ has given it to us, and because the church has consistently throughout history practiced it regularly. But why is it important? Why is the Lord's Supper important? Why should we gather especially for this? Because, uh, most importantly, it demonstrates, obedient, demonstrates obedience to, God's, or to Christ's commands. Matthew chapter 18, or 28, verses 18-20, through 20, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Part of what Christ has commanded us is to gather for the Lord's Supper, to take it in remembrance of His death on the cross for our sin. It's also important to take the Lord's Supper together because it proclaims the gospel. Paul says in verse twenty six of First Corinthians eleven, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As a local church, it's our responsibility to regularly and, and with priority take the Lord's Supper as a Christ centered memorial meal and declaration of the gospel and the transformation that, that it has it has brought about in our lives. Christian author Jonathan Lehman has said this, that the Lord's Supper is the team jersey of the church. He said, in the Lord's Supper, in taking the Lord's Supper, we know who's on the team, right? Who's been showing up to practice? Who 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 is doing the, the work that it takes to be on the team? Who is in it for the sake of the team? Those people get to wear a jersey, right? And, and in taking the Lord's Supper, we see who is wearing the team jersey of the church. When we prioritize the Lord's Supper, regularly taken together as a whole body, we are benefited. This is the benefit side of the responsibility. We are benefited by the tangible, physical reminder of Christ's sacrifice for our sin. And by the affirmation of many other believers taking that same memorial meal with us, that we are walking together in continued repentance and faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is not an individualistic thing that we're supposed to take by ourselves in our own state of mind when it's going on. There is is certainly a a time for personal reflection and confession of sin and, and making things right with God and others in the church that you may have conflict with before taking the Lord's Supper. But when we take it, we take it as a whole family altogether. It is a family meal. And it's a meal that reminds us of who our Savior is. It's a meal that reminds us of the one that has brought us all together. It's a meal that we take together because Christ has given it to the whole church and not just to individuals. Fourth among our responsibilities as a church, as as members of a local church, we are to intentionally cooperate for gospel proclamation. And by this I mean evangelism. Verses like Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20, which we've already heard. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in which Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem in Judea and all Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Right? Matthew 28 and Acts 1, 8 sort of work in tandem to give this picture of, uh, of what Christ intends the church to do and to be as the church. So even as we are responsible to declare and proclaim the gospel internally, that is among ourselves in our gathering, through corporate worship and through taking the Lord's Supper, we're also responsible to proclaim the gospel externally, to proclaim the gospel outwardly through evangelism and through mission. Evangelism is an imperative in the Pages of the New Testament. Interestingly enough, we had some good friends over to our house last night who are members of another church here in town. And, uh, and my friend Trevor asked me, he said, uh, Why is it that, that we don't ever see the, the command to evangelize like we do in Matthew 28 in the rest of the New Testament? We don't see it that often. It's like, Why is that? And I said, Because I think it's an implied imperative. It's the kind of imperative that Christ gave once to the disciples, and in the disciples hearing it, they said, this isn't just for us, this is for all who come after. And and being on mission, taking the gospel to the lost, so quickly became a part of the DNA of the church in its earliest days, that it goes without saying that the church ought to be evangelizing. Certainly, we have evidence to that evangelism throughout the world in the, in the pages of the New Testament. Paul encourages Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. We see... Uh, uh, Paul and Philip and Peter, all going to different places around the world, taking the gospel. It's not something they needed to be reminded that they needed to do. It's something that they knew was an absolute responsibility of the church. In Matthew 28, 18-20, in the Great Commission, the last of Christ's commands recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus commands the disciples to make more disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples. But how are they supposed to do that? Fortunately, Christ gave them instruction. Right? They make ba- uh, disciples by baptizing and by teaching, baptizing them in accordance with their profession of faith in Christ, and then teaching them as followers of Christ to observe all of Christ's commands, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, right? We, we've we've said this already before, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Here Christ's statement to the church is not one of command so much as it is of certain promise of what they as disciples will do in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Christ doesn't say, receive the Holy Spirit, be my witnesses. He says, you will receive the Holy Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There, there's an imperative flavor to that, but it's more declarative than it is imperative. It's more a, state, uh, a statement of what will happen rather than what they must do. And the gathered body of those trusting in Christ alone and filled with the promised Holy Spirit in the pages of Acts cannot help but be verbal and bold witnesses of the gospel everywhere that they go. As a local church, it is our responsibility to persevere in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to those who are not yet followers of Jesus and to help them to grow up into their faith. The explicit benefit of being faithful witnesses to the gospel of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit is first in knowing that we are being faithfully obedient to Christ and his commands. Sometimes, when it comes to applying God's Word to our life, the benefit is just in knowing that we're being obedient to our Lord. Well, there's benefit in that. There's there's joy in knowing that we are doing what God has called us to do. But secondly, we benefit from knowing that as we proclaim the gospel... And as lost people are saved, that God's kingdom and God's family are enlarged and that God has been gracious enough to include our testimony for Christ as part of his plan to grow his kingdom. So there's joy, there's benefit in knowing that we're doing what God has called us to do, but there's joy and benefit in knowing that God has even allowed us to be a part of it. Right? God doesn't need us to do anything, but he's Chosen us to be a part of His saving work amongst humanity by being verbal witnesses of the gospel of Christ in the world. It's a blessing and a privilege that we sinful people get to be used by God in this way. And we ought to consider that a benefit. Fifth among our responsibilities is this. To seek relationships within the church for gospel maturation. That's just a fancy way of saying discipleship. Right? Look for other people in the church to, to be in relationship with for the purpose of discipleship. Pastor Adam read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 for us this morning. It says this, He gave, that is, uh, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children These gifts are not, not things, but in fact, people with different abilities and different callings. He mentions the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and, and shepherds, shepherd teachers. The apostles are those who, who physically saw Christ, who ministered with Christ, who were instrumental in the beginnings of the church. Those people don't necessarily exist anymore today. You know, we've not seen Christ physically in that sense. But he said those also the prophets I think we understand this. We don't have a lot of time to go into this this morning, but I think we best understand this word prophets as those who speak a word from God, usually of edification or conviction. This is not necessarily preaching. Prophecy is not preaching. It's a distinct thing. God has also given evangelists, and these are those who, are, who have been called by God to be heralds of the gospel in a regular and ongoing sense. Those whom God has specifically called and equipped to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus in notable ways. I think of people like, uh, like Billy Graham as one of these evangelists, one who, who has just demonstrated this call of God on his life to proclaim the gospel to lost people all over the world. And then finally, we have the the shepherds and teachers, or uh, some translations may say the the shepherd teachers. These are pastors who, who lead the church, who teach in the local church, who give vision and direction and instruction for godliness in the church. What's the purpose of all of these gifts? The purpose of the gifts of these people for the leadership of the church, is, is, is specifically this. It's the equipping of the saints. It's the edifying of the church. It's the building up of the body of Christ in, un, in the unity of faith to mature manhood, to, to spiritually mature manhood, and to the fullness of the measure of Christ so that we would not be spiritual children, spiritually immature, tossed around to and fro by every, uh, every wayward preacher that has a different thing to say or whatever, but that we would be mature men and women of the faith. These leaders that Paul mentions are God's good gifts to the church. They're good gifts to the church, and they should be recognized as such because God's given them. But let's not overlook the the purpose of the gift, right? The purpose is to assist the assembly of believers to be spiritually mature, to be wise, to be equipped, and to be gospel-anchored. But that role of discipleship, of, of growing the church in spiritual maturity, does not rest solely on the shoulders of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. It's also a responsibility that each and every one of us bear. And here's why I think we can say that. In Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul writing to a young pastor, Titus says this As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, show dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The responsibility of the church to disciple others in the church is not limited to those who have been gifted and called by God, but it extends to each and every one of us. The biblical picture of discipleship is intentionally and specifically cross-generational. That is specifically from, from the older to the younger. Older and more mature believers discipling and guiding and teaching and instructing and encouraging younger and more immature believers. Paul says in Titus that older men are to be examples of holiness and spiritual maturity so that they might encourage younger men to emulate that same sort of Christ-like maturity. Christ-like integrity, Christ-like dignity, Christ-like even orthodoxy in in the things that they say and believe. The same way older women are to be examples to the younger women in speech and in action, in their habits and in their family relationships. This kind of discipleship that we see commanded to Titus and to his church cannot happen among a a cloistered group of, of youth. Right? It can't happen amongst a segregated senior adult ministry. It can't happen in a, a young married couple's group only. If the ministries of the church are always segregated by age, we can never expect biblical discipleship to truly happen. If all we do when we come together is to go to our generational pockets and never seek to interact with those that are older than us or younger than us, then we will be forever spiritually immature, spiritually stifled, I know that I, as a young married man, have much to learn from those of you who have been married much longer than me. We, we have several couples in our church that have been married 50 years or more. And there's much that I have to learn from you about making a marriage, uh, ha- having a marriage last and, and, and for Christ to be the center of a marriage for 50 or 60 or 70 years. Right? Young people, students sitting here in the front row, you may not like it very much, but there are older people in the church that actually know some things and can help you work through some of the stuff in your life. Older people, right? older folks in our congregation, anybody that's older than like 40, Okay, so that's a lot of us in this room, we, we have things to learn from younger people. Right? They, have, they have vigor and, and vitality and an enthusiasm for life and even for the gospel that can be challenging and convicting to us as well. But look, if we as a church don't cross those lines and begin to interact with one another across generations, we miss out on all of that. We miss out on the blessing of God growing our church to to be more spiritually mature. Right to be a a spiritual man, if you will, that 's not tossed about here and there or whatever by every which thing that we hear, but that we as a body would be would be soundly anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when things come either from the culture or from satan or or from wherever that we won 't be discomforted by those things. We won't be distraught by those things, but we'll stand with firm confidence that we as the church, as we submit ourselves to God's word and desire to bring one another up in the faith, we can have confidence in knowing that in the midst of all that, Christ is still Lord. God is still on his throne and the Bible will last as, as God's eternal true word for all time. And we can consistently turn to to that. The benefit of seeking out and engaging in cross-generational discipleship is that the church grows spiritually and becomes more mature. Younger believers and those earlier on in their faith grow in their depth and grasp of the gospel. And older believers grow in greater wisdom and godliness as they pass on their wisdom and sound doctrine to the faith uh, of the faith to those who are younger. That's how we benefit from, from being a church that, that seeks to exact our responsibility of discipleship. Sixth and nearing the end. We are to humbly practice gospel correction. Next to this, you can write church discipline or or restorative church discipline. Last week, Pastor Adam introduced this topic to us from 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, where we saw a man in the church who was in a, a sexually illicit relationship with his stepmother, and the people in the church had said, "That's awesome, dude. That's great." And Paul was saying, "What is wrong with you? Right? He's doing a thing that even the pagans don't do. Even the even the Romans, with all their weird whatever sexual moralities or immoralities that they they don't even do this stuff. And yet you guys are patting yourselves on the back for this." He said, "No, put this man out of the church for the destruction of his body, so the soul might be saved." Right, So there we, we saw, and then in Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul exhorting the church to bring him back into the body because it's clear that his repentance, his sorrow over sin is, is evident. And Paul is saying, now welcome him back into the body as, as a member of the church because if you leave him in his sorrow, it's not going to be good for his soul. So, but now that he's repenting, bring him back in and restore this brother. question we may be asking this morning is, why are we responsible to discipline and to hold members accountable for, for their sin? We understand that as the church, we're, we're made up of sinners, right? Sinners who are saved by God's grace as we repent of sin and place faith in Christ. But we also recognize that we will continue to fight against the sinful nature with which we were born so long as we live on this side of the resurrection, Right? Our, our sinful bodies will continue to wage war against the spirit within us, leading us to, to desire sin, to want to commit sin. But because we know that, that we will continue to struggle with sin, we also value ongoing confession of sin and repentance of sin. That very thing which is so crucial to our initial salvation we are saved initially by confessing our sin to God and repenting of it, placing faith in Christ. And we, are, we continue to walk in salvation by regularly confessing sin, regularly repenting of sin, regularly in an ongoing way placing our faith in Christ. Pastor Matt Chandler said in, in his book, Creature of the Word, that a gospel-centered community acknowledges the presence of sin and welcomes the confession of sin, but a truly gospel-centered community never reduces the severity of sin. The church should be, he says, a safe environment for people to be honest about where they are, but always with one notable caveat, without excusing their sin. Our sin has no excuse. Sin must be confessed. Sin must be repented of. We must continually place faith in Christ and continue to walk, continue to walk in that faith in Christ. And we as the church are responsible to hold one another to the confession that we have all made, that Christ is Lord, Right? And, that, and that we are turning from our sin on a regular basis. And so when a believer, believer in Jesus who belongs to this church as a member, is walking, is living in unrepentant sin, not acknowledging their sinfulness or the spiritual damage that it's causing, we do not turn a blind eye to that. But we graciously and lovingly confront that sin for the good of that believer's walk with Christ and for the good of their own testimony to the gospel. Practicing church discipline is to say to an unrepentant believer, to a a, a Christian walking in sin, it is to say to him, I love you too much to let you continue living in a way that is destructive to your soul. We love you too much to allow you to go on sinning as though it had no effect on your relationship with Christ and his church. And we love Christ and the gospel too much to let you live in this way, thinking that your unrepentance, that your uh, blatant sinfulness has no negative effect upon the gospel. Imagine what sort of testimony it gives to Christ if someone says that they are a Christian, but they're, they're in an illicit relationship with their stepmother. What does that say about Christ and the church? Nothing good, Right? So that's why we confront that sin. That's why we keep people accountable to continue to walk in holiness for the sake of the gospel and the testimony of Christ among our whole body. Very briefly, and and, and we really, unfortunately, don't have enough time to really do this justice, but but it's worth asking the question, how do we do that? How do we practice restorative church discipline? What are the steps involved? What does it look like? Placing someone under church discipline is not, not merely or not even kicking them out of the church, not saying you can't be here anymore. Just like if your children are being disobedient, you don't kick them out of the family, right? Instead, you, you, the point of discipline is repentance and reintegration into the body. And so we discipline in the church specifically by restricting certain privileges of members. And when you become a member of the local body, there are certain things that, that you are privileged to be a part of and to do. One is the Lord's Supper, right? The, the Lord's Supper is only taken by uh, by believers who are gathered together as the church. It's a privilege of being able to proclaim the, the gospel to one another. Members in the church in good standing are able to teach in, in various places within the church, in Sunday school and, uh, and vacation Bible school and things like that. Members of the church in good standing are able to vote on issues of church business, right? Uh, what we do, How we uh, allocate funds and, and what sort of... Um, Programs and other things we get involved in, when somebody's under church discipline, when when somebody is by their by their uh, life and the way that they're living, demonstrating that they're not following uh, they're they're not following a path of pursuing personal holiness when they're they are. Uh, uh, decrying the gospel by every act uh, that they commit, we, we put them under church discipline by restricting those privileges, by, by withholding the Lord's Supper from them. Lord's Supper is a team jersey of the church, right? Jonathan Lehman says. We say if you're not living like the rest of the team is supposed to be living, you don't get to wear the jersey, right? You didn't show up for practice. You didn't come to two-a-days. You, you didn't do the work outside. You, you're not pursuing what it is to be a member of the team. You don't get to wear the jersey. We also don't allow them to have leadership positions if they're under church discipline. If somebody's not living consistently with the gospel, do you really want that person to be teaching the gospel to your children? For the good of your children and for the good of themselves. And and then finally, we don't allow them to vote on issues of church business. And that is because when somebody's living... So we don't... The church only consists of regenerate believers, right? People who have been saved by Christ, by faith in Christ, who have been baptized into into the family of Christ. We don't allow non-believers to vote on church business. We don't allow people who are not believers and not trusting in Christ to to have a voice in terms of what what the church of Christ does with the funds and the resources and the other things that we have. So if somebody is living as though they are unregenerate, if somebody's living as though they are not saved, why then should they have the privilege of being able to vote on things that Christ's church is desiring to do? Church discipline encourages, however, Continued participation in worship, for the sake of the unrepentant hearing the gospel over and over again, but it restricts those privileges that most directly give corporate testimony to the individual's salvation. We welcome nonbelievers to attend our worship, and we're glad when nonbelievers are worshiping with us. We. Um, because the gospel is preached and, and that's good for their souls, but we don't allow nonbelievers to take the Lord's Supper. We don't allow non to lead in the church and we don't allow non-believers to vote on church issues. But if a member is acting like a non-believer in his or her personal life, why should we continually to af- continue to affirm them as a believer within our assembly? This is why we practice restorative church discipline, seeking the repentance of the, uh, of the one who is walking in continued sin, that we might welcome them back into the body. As a local church, we are responsible to guard the souls of those who profess to be believers by holding them all accountable to live in a manner consistent with their profession that Christ is Lord. The beneficial upshot of practicing restorative church discipline in this way is that we find ourselves surrounded regularly by a community of people who are willing to follow after us when we wander into sin and in an effort to rescue us from spiritual peril. As Pastor Adam said last week, when we walk in unrepentant sin, it is like jumping voluntarily into a burning volcano. And restorative church discipline is people in the church jumping in the volcano after you to say, don't do that stupid, right? Make the right decision. Come back here. Don't do things that are destructive to you. We love you and care about you too much to do that. Seventh and finally, as believers in Christ, as members of a local church, we are responsible to generously offer gospel care or or to practice congregational care. This is something that we've seen on display recently in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the last part of Acts chapter 2, and the last bit of Acts chapter 4, where the whole church gathering together is selling their possessions and they're giving the excess to the apostles to be distributed to anybody in the church that has need. The church taking care of the, the needy among them. This is a consistent thing that we see on display throughout all of the New Testament. And so let me very quickly, in in machine-gun style, rattle off several places in the New Testament where we see congregational care on display. Matthew 25, verse 40. Here Jesus promises that whatever we do for the least of one of his brothers... We do it also for him. Acts chapter two verses forty four and forty five. Acts chapter four verses thirty two through thirty seven. We just uh, reviewed believers selling their excess property and possessions and using that money to meet the needs among them. Acts chapter fifteen verse thirty six. Paul expresses his desire to visit the churches that uh, to visit the churches they have helped to plant to see how they are doing to see how they're faring to give them encouragement. Uh, Romans chapter twelve verse thirteen. Paul commands the church to quote contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Romans 15, verse 26, we see the churches in Macedonia and in Greece are collecting and have sent a contribution to aid uh, the church in Jerusalem has been struck by famine. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul advises and instructs the church to give generously and regularly for the church in Jerusalem. Galatians 2, verse 10, Paul recounts how James and Peter sent Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles, asking only that they remember the poor, quote, the very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. Galatians 6, verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, Paul writes, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews 13, verse 16, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. James 1, verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, John says, Let us not love in, in word or in talk, uh, but in deed and in truth. These are several, but certainly not all of the places in the New Testament where care for the body is commanded, is encouraged, is instructed to the church. The church should desire to show Christ-like care for the spiritual and physical needs of those in the world. But the church is specifically called, especially called, to do right by those among the family of faith to which they belong who have need. Here we may recall Christ's words in John chapter 13, verse 35, when he says, By this, all people will will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If we as the church are not seeking to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those who are followers of Christ in this body, how then will the world know that we have indeed been transformed by Christ and are obeying his commands as a body? As a local church, we are responsible to collectively and generously meet those legitimate physical needs and all spiritual needs among those with whom we have covenanted together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We owe that to the body. The corresponding benefit, though, to gospel care, to congregational care, should be obvious, I hope. If the local church is collectively looking out for the well-being of the whole body, physically and spiritually, then when you or when I find ourselves in a position of physical or spiritual need, the good news is we have the whole family of faith to lean on and turn to for help in that situation. The church has at least seven responsibilities, and and the hour is long, and and I thank you for your graciousness and hanging in here with me. But but we as a church must do these seven things in a regular and an ongoing way. And when we do this, when we seek to glorify God, when we gather for worship, when we take the Lord's Supper together regularly, when when we seek to evangelize the world, when we disciple one another, when we hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and when we care for one another spiritually like this, when the local church embraces its God-given design and fulfills its God-given responsibilities, then what happens in the life of the church is that God is first and foremost glorified. Secondly, Christ is proclaimed internally and externally. And the church reaps the benefits of their God-glorifying spiritual growth. I spoke earlier about using a tool a certain way that it was not designed for and being frustrated that, at the fact that it wasn't doing its job. To use that same analogy, the, the church is a tool of God that He has designed to do specific things. But if we as the church, as as to put it in, in terms that we've already used, if we as God's flathead screwdriver have decided that we actually are meant to be a hammer, we are neither going to glorify God nor fulfill our purpose. But when we as the church are the church, the way that God has designed the church, not only do we get the job done for which we were most specifically designed, but we make the worker look really good. Amen? Amen. This morning, if you're not a member of this church, you're not a follower of Christ, a lot of this may not apply to you. I hope that much of it is compelling to you and and that you see the, the many of the benefits that come from being a part of the church. But let me tell you this. If you're not a believer in Christ and you're not trusting in Jesus for salvation, you're not part of the church and you can't be part of the church. But we want you to be part of the church. We want to welcome you into our family of faith. And this is how you do that. You do it by accepting the gospel. The gospel is is essentially this, that that God, when he created the world and created mankind, he created mankind for a relationship of love and worship with him. But man in his sin broke that relationship and and separated himself relationally and and even in the sense of, of holiness and goodness. He separated himself morally from God. And there's nothing we can do on our own to fix this infinitely large chasm between us and God that we've created by our own sin. But God in His love and mercy and His grace was not content to allow us to continue to wallow in our sin, but instead sent His Son, Jesus, to be God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, taking all of our sin upon Himself, paying for that sin with His death so that all of us who have faith in him, who rest our lives on the truth of who Christ is and what he did for us, when we rest our lives on that, we are made right with God, we are united to Christ, and we become a part of the universal church, the, the, the church of all people who have, who have been saved throughout all time. But then after that, God calls you to, to join a local church, to be a part of a local body of believers, so that you can grow up in your faith. So you can be matured in your faith so that you won't be tossed this way and that by, by every sort of uh, wandering teacher and, and, and others who may have their own agenda. So if you today would like to make a profession of faith, if you'd like to trust Christ for the first time in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Danny and the praise team are going to come. Uh, Pastor Adam and I will be here at the front. I invite you to come and, and share with us your desire to be made right with God through faith in Christ today. And let us, let us begin that, that walk of, of growing in, um, in spiritual maturity with you even today. I invite you to do that. If you're a member of our church and you're convicted by anything that you've heard this morning that we need to do better or need to do more, I pray that you would respond to God this morning by praying that he would give us wisdom and discernment, that he would give us courage and boldness to be, biblical, to be faithful to his word in the Bible as to what the church is and ought to be. If you're seeking, if you've been joining our church for, or, or attending our church for a while as a visitor uh, and you want to know what you ought to look for in the church, I hope that you'll find these seven responsibilities we've covered today on display in our body and that whether you join our church or another, these seven things ought to be what you look for in any church that you desire to join. See that that church is, is first and foremost wanting to desire God, that they value gathering together, that they're proclaiming the gospel through the Lord's Supper and evangelism, that they're helping one another to grow in the faith, that they're keeping one another accountable for, for their sin and, and for their walk and personal holiness following Christ, and that they're caring for one another. Let's be the church God has designed us to be. Let's pray that God will enable us to be the church that He's designed us to be. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you.